Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Gospel Saving Church. Praise God, I'm so glad you're here. I hope you didn't come to church today to be entertained, because I'm not here, and I'm not an entertainer. I'm a teacher, and I'm a man of God, and I love the Lord Jesus Christ with all my heart, and I'm here to teach you. I'm not here to entertain you. If you came here because you really are earnestly seeking God and you because you love God or you're seeking God, well then praise God. I bet you don't know this, but you will now, but that makes God happy. That puts a smile on God's face because you know why? We took time out of our days, out of our lives, out of our busy schedules, and we made time for God today. Whether it's today, uh, the 6th, uh, August 6, 2017, or whether whenever you're listening to this message, you're making time out for God to make God and show God He's important to you. And that makes God smile. If this is your first time to Gospel Saving Church, hello, I'm Pastor Ed, and this is one of God's true churches of these last days, and this is our weekly broadcast of truth. If you guys would please join me in a word of prayer, we always ask for prayer because we know the Bible says that the natural man, which we all have a natural man within us, cannot understand the words of God, cannot understand the things of the Spirit. So we have to ask and pray that the Holy Spirit would show us these things because we know that without God's Holy Spirit, no one would understand the things of God. So if you join me, please, in a word of prayer. Thank you so much, dear God, for your holy word. God, thank you so much, Lord, for it is our foundation. God, without it, Lord, David said, because of it, we have a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, Lord. That means without it, Lord, everyone, no matter what, the planet would be in complete darkness, Lord. But because your word is a light, God, if we use it, if we meditate on it, if we read it, if we study it, Lord, and if we actually practice what it says, Lord, then we don't have to ever stumble. We don't ever have to fall. Because, Lord, we only stumble and fall when it's dark. Generally, when it's light time, it's daytime, everybody walks normal. Lord, we can walk upright, and we can know where we're going, and we don't have to be lost. Thank you, Lord God, that your word is the lamp into our feet and the light into our paths. Thank you so much, Lord God. We just pray, Lord God, as I mentioned before, Lord, we just pray that we know that without you enlightening us, helping us to understand your word, God, we would not be able to understand it. Lord, we would just all be in the dark, same thing. Lord, without your Holy Spirit to teach us what your word says, Lord, spiritually, Lord, not just in a physical way, but in a spiritual way, Lord, we would all be lost. So please, God, help us to understand the things of you today by your Holy Spirit. Teach us, God. Let me get out of the way, and I pray that you would teach us. God, thank you so much, Lord. And whatever changes need to be made in our lives, whether it be for any that are listening, whether it be for them to come to you for the first time or to come back to you because they've been away, or for us to just grow stronger in you, Lord, I pray that you fulfill one of those purposes in each one of our lives today. Please, dear God. We love you and we ask these things, all these things, in the mighty and precious and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you guys would join me, please turn to Acts chapter 9, verses 21 through 25. And I'm not going to read them just yet. I'm going to go through some thoughts from last week's message. God's makeover of Saul. It's so powerful the makeover that God gave Saul. Amen. I mean, we just see it in Scripture, right? God called him. He accepted the call. 
He committed his life to Christ by the free will that God's given everyone. And God changed him in a crazy way. All I can say is, wow, that's all I can say. After Saul was saved, he instantly became obedient to God's voice. He started fasting. He started praying to get to know Jesus Christ intimately, for that is why Christians are supposed to fast and pray, not to gain things, but to get closer to God and to know God, who God really is, right? Then he begins to fellowship with believers in Christ. For the Bible says, do not forsake the fellowshipping one another together. And instantly he does that, and he's a babe in Christ. Days, weeks old, and yet he didn't, he didn't even write any of that. The New Testament wasn't even written yet, yet the Holy Spirit led him to fellowship with other believers because we're not supposed to forsake the fellowship one another together. And lastly, we read, we read about him evangelizing others for Christ. Jesus is, is the Christ. You need to, Jesus, you need to know Jesus. The only thing that remained of the original Saul after God did his makeover in Saul uh, was his outward appearance. He looked the same on the outside, right? If you were to see a picture of Saul at that time, oh, that's still the same Saul. But I don't know this new Saul because everything else had changed. Saul got a new heart. He got new desires. He got a new outlook. He just wasn't the same. And even if you can believe it, what you can, because we know, well, who's Saul, you may be saying, if you've never read the Bible. Well, he's who the Bible calls the Apostle Paul later, because God even gave him a new name. <laughs> because of that, there was some talk, I know years back, I heard that, that people were going to maybe think about changing their names once they really got saved. Because, you know, hey, Saul did it, Paul, just something to think about. But that's the only thing that was remained after Saul was changed was his outward appearance. Everything else changed. And it is because of this example of Saul, with myself, as I used to be an evil, hateful, terrible man, in every other true born-again person that I know, that after someone truly meets Christ, truly has a true revelation of God, and God changes them, that that person, as long as they continue steadfast in the faith, as the Bible tells us that we must, that they will never, ever, ever be the same. They will be changed from then on to the rest of their life. Same as Colossians 1, 20, 21 through 23 says, And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Listen, if, whenever we see a big ifs in the Bible, there's a lot of ifs in the Bible, if indeed you continue in the faith, because it is our choice to either continue or to backslide, or to walk away from God, if you indeed continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and you're not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. So, as long as you remain steadfast in the faith, in Christ, after you've been truly born again, you will be a changed person, and that all that you meet or that knew you who really don't know Christ, because there's a lot of those out there who don't know Christ, will have a hard time even recognizing and understanding the new creation you. All except, of course, for your outward image. So you'll be changed. Let's move on. Moving on to our new message, Acts 9, 21 through 25. Title of our message today. I'm so excited. This is something that God has given me for years as a, as a ministry to people, and, and, it, and it's, it's just so awesome I get to talk about it because we see it in Scripture today. It's right out of Scripture, and I'll point it out when we get there. The title of our message, Proving That This Jesus Is the Christ. Proving That This Jesus 
is the Christ. It's Again, it's in Scripture. I like to, many times God gives me our titles right out of the Word because I'm big on the Word. I'm big on Jesus as I'm a Jesus freak, and I'm big on the Word. It's the Word and it's Jesus, and that's what we got from God. I ended off the over last week by saying that Saul and all born-again believers, that as they remain steadfast in Christ, after they've been truly born again, you'll be a changed person. Look what happens. Look at verse 21 through 25. Acts 9. We read this. Then all who heard were amazed, and they said, Is this not he who destroyed those who called on the name in Jerusalem, meaning the name of Christ in Jerusalem? And has he not come here for that purpose, so that he might bring them bound to the chief priest? Did you see there? Did you see there that exactly what I said about nobody recognizing who you are if you're born again right there? They knew it was Saul. They heard about him from the ear. They knew, hey, this is, isn't that, this is that guy, but I, I don't understand. He's, he's different. I, I know this is Saul. As, I mean, I know this, this is what we have seen of him, but he's not the same. He's a different person, right? They had a hard time recognizing and understanding the new creation of Saul. They knew it looked like him, but who is this? He, didn't he come here to destroy the people of the name? Yet now he's here. He's telling us about the name. Wow. The Bible just confirms exactly what I said. They just couldn't believe that the man they'd heard about who had come from Jerusalem to attack those who were Christians was the same man that they heard preaching to them. Saul was, again, a completely changed person. 2 Corinthians 5.17, he was a new creation in Christ Jesus. I can really relate to this. Personally, I can totally relate to this. When I tell people after they know the me now, hey, did you know I used to be this? And did you know I used to do this? And I was abusive and I refused the knowledge of God and I hated people and I hated myself and I'd run you off the road. Oh, really? That's, come on, man, you're pulling my leg. There's no way that could be you. There's just no way. Because that's right. Because when you come in contact with the power of God and the person of God and you submit your life to him, there's no way that you can be the same. And this, I've run into this. I'm sure Saul, when he became Paul, that's probably why I had to change his name. No, I'm, I'm Paul. Well, I heard about that guy. No, 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 no. I'm Paul. I'm, I'm this new guy in Christ and I came to preach the gospel. Anyway, moving on. Uh, but that's not all we see here in this section. Look at verse 22. But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who dwelt in Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, who dwelt in Damascus, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Told you I always, most likely, I like to get my message titles out of the message itself, out of the actual scripture, because I love scripture. So first thing to see here, as Saul exercised his abilities and showed, and sowed, I should say, his, his, to the talents that God had given him, meaning the, the responsibilities the, 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 the charges, hey, God told me to go do this. All right, I'm going to go do this. I, I'm going to be faithful. And he continued in Christ by faith. Scripture tells us there in that very first sentence there that he increased all the more in strength. He just proves here exactly what the Bible, exactly what Christ taught in a principle in Matthew 25 through 29, or 25, 29, excuse me, for to everyone who has, more will be given. You see, when you do the things that God plans you to do, and, and you've gotten some charges from God, well, my son, my daughter, go do this. Go do that. I want you to do this. If, if you're lazy, 
Well, then you're going to get the second half there. Jesus Christ says to the lazy one, but from him who does not have, even one has will be taken away, but the person that actually acts on and does the things which God says, they will increase all the more, for to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have in abundance, as Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 25. So just keep that in mind. If you want more from God, be faithful with the little. If you don't care about more, well, then just don't do nothing with what you got, and he'll just take away what you got and when you get there. Moving on, look at the second thing that we see here in this verse. How exactly did he increase all the more in strength? And so really, how did God give him more as he sowed and was responsible with the gifts and responsibilities that God had given him? Look at the second part of that. He sa- it says here, and he, and confounding or confounded, the Greek word there is Sun keho, defined as to disturb the mind of one, to perplex the mind, which means that he confused, and then the rest there, the Jews who dwelt in Damascus in the matter of, rest of verse 22, proving that this Jesus is the Christ. Please understand here, Scripture is not saying that Saul confused the Jews in Damascus so that they did not understand the message he was giving them, like in to say, here's this Jesus, and he's the Christ, and look, here's he's the Christ. Huh? What is he saying to us? I, I don't understand. Jesus who? I, what? Huh? What? Oh, well, whatever. And I can prove it to you. Scripture saying that he confounded or perplexed their minds and that they were listening. They were sold out in believing that Jesus was just a man. They were sold out to this idea Jesus was not the Christ. And that yet what he did by confounding, perplexing their minds, by the info and the proof that Saul gave him, he dashed to pieces and destroyed the original ideas of Jesus by proving that Jesus was indeed the Christ or Messiah of God. And in doing so, he disturbed or he perplexed their minds. In other words, I like, to, I like this the way God gave it to me, put it here. In other words, he rocked their world and the views of Jesus wide open. They thought this is Jesus. He said, you're wrong, and here's why. And they were like, bah. They were like that old, uh, that old uh, you know, before you used to have the old VHS tapes, and you used to put the VHS tape in and, and the cleaner, and it would go, you know, with the big, all the noise. They were blown away. He destroyed their faith beliefs of who they thought Jesus was by utterly wiping out their false, unjustifiable, unprovable beliefs of Jesus with the justifiable and provable truth that Christ was indeed God's Christ and God's Messiah. How do I know what I said is true? And how do I know the Jews weren't just totally confused? Like, oh, what's he saying? We don't know. Anyway, this babbler, what's he saying? Look to verse 23, and I'll prove to you that he confounded them, not to confusion where they couldn't understand, but that he confounded them to like blowing their beliefs of Jesus out of the way. Verse 23, now after many days were passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. What does that tell us? You see, after many days, think of it. Saul got to talk to them, proven Jesus Christ to them for many days. Oh, I love that. I'd love that to do that today. After many days that Saul proved Jesus as the true Christ of God to them, they plotted to kill him. They rejected him, right? Despite the evidence and the proof that Saul showed them, right? And here's why I know that he didn't just confuse them to the point of, 
What are you talking about, man? What are you talking about? You don't get angry enough to kill somebody if what they say just utterly confuses you and you don't understand somebody. You don't get, whoa, let's get him, right? But you do get angry enough to kill somebody if you believe in something. No, I believe this. Yes, this is what I believe. And you believe it with all your heart. Oh, this is truth and I know it. And you do, and you can get angry to death as someone dashes your belief to the ground and you aren't open to the justifiable truth that they bring you that destroys yours. That's when you get angry. You don't get angry when you're confused. You get angry when, you're just, when your beliefs get destroyed. I know I've had it happen to me. Not to actually get angry enough to kill, but I've been in debates where I believe certain things to be true, right? And the one I debated destroyed my false belief or my false beliefs with actual, justifiable, provable truths. And I was, needless to say, and probably an understatement, vehemently and even violently angry because what they were telling me I wasn't willing to accept even though I knew it was true. I knew it was true, but oh man, that's my... No, I can't be wrong because of my pride. Because of my pride? No, I just can't be wrong. I know, I know they're right, but I can't admit it. So I'm going to fight my way out of this, right? It's a hard position to be in. But if you're humble, or I should say, if you humble yourself when it happens, because that's really where it goes. That's really what the problem is. Uh, because of pride, the pride that everybody, even children of God, unfortunately, that we still deal with, nobody likes to be proven wrong about something they believe in to be true. Nobody. I can't know any, I don't know one person. I've, I've been around 42 years and I'm a school bus driver and I'm a pastor and I work for a home improvement store and I know thousands of people and I've met probably tens of thousands of people and yet I find yet not one of them that is, and I found that when I prove them wrong or when they prove me wrong, we like it. Which, <laughs> all right, I'm wrong today. It's just, it just doesn't happen, right? People all love truths, <laughs> their own they all love their own truth, including me. But when somebody comes and dashes your truths to pieces, right? Because maybe we all have truths that aren't true, really, ultimately, right? We all have truths that we believe to be true, but they're not really like ultimate truth, you know, right? We all have those, right? And when somebody comes with a piece of truth that, that contradicts ours and they can prove their truth and their truth is justifiable and it proves ours wrong, we don't like it. We don't like that truth. <laughs> we fight against that truth so many times. And bless God, I had to, many times I've had to admit I'm wrong, that he allows me to do that because I'll tell you, if you're not saved, you really don't want to admit your truth. And, and here, we see here in verse 23, we know these people weren't saved. And what happened? They got moved because of Saul proving them wrong to anger, to kill. They weren't just angry like, oh, man, that makes me angry. Oh, and then they left. They got angry enough to kill, right? After Saul proved them wrong about who Jesus was for days. Think of it. Oh, I'd love to do that. Jesus was That Jesus was actually the Christ, the Messiah of God. They weren't willing to humble themselves and admit they were wrong about who they thought Jesus was. They weren't willing to repent. This is the confounding that Saul gave them in their mind. So the alternative of, of refusing to repent, they got angry, angry enough to murder. So sad for them. Because they knew they were wrong. 
They knew they were so wrong, and they, you could see their, their proofs, their, their ideas got dashed to pieces, and they got so angry. All they had to do was repent. But because of pride, they refused, right? So, so for many days, first words, verse 23, Saul proved to them with irrefutable proof that Jesus was indeed the Christ, the one that God actually sent to save his people, the Jews, the one foretold in the scriptures, right? Also the Gentiles as well, but the Jews weren't really willing to accept that at this point, right? And all mankind from their sins, which sadly made these guys these guys that hated God. Why do I say they hated God? Well, Jesus said, if you reject me, you reject the one that sent me. So they were rejecting Jesus. So they were God-hating. That's just what scripture says. So these guys were, were had their heads spinning. They were perplexed. No, that can't be right. Even though I don't want this, I just don't want to, right? But they didn't repent. They didn't admit they were wrong. And they're moved to wrath. I know that that's a bad thing, but how powerful, amen, this, this exchange that he gave him must have been. Wow, right? I would have loved to have been there for these days. Who knows how many? It could have been two, could have been three, could have been four, right? As this newly on fire for Christ, man of God. There was no scriptures. He, he proved Christ to them from, from, what he, from what God showed him, from what God revealed to him, right? This man of God, new, this new convert Saul, right? Soon to be Paul. He proved Christ to them with irrefutable proof for days. Wow, many days, actually, the scripture says. But as much as I would have loved to have been there, as much as I would have loved to be like, hey, you know, I, I wish I could go back or I wish I could, you know, sometimes I say things about Jesus and I say, you know, his, his, road, his road that he walked on with some guys at one point and he, and he proved, you know, and he, and he showed, he opened up the scriptures for them. And they were like, wow, and I, I can't wait to get there and, and, and talk to Jesus about that interaction. As, as much as I'd love to have been there for Saul, what, what, what he did, I or we don't have to be too sad that we missed this one, in fact. And you say, Why? Because today, August 6, 2017, we can actually know around about now, and actually we can know it all, but we can know around about today, because we're not going to get to all, what Saul told them and how he proved to them that Jesus was the Christ. Isn't that just awesome? We can know today what Saul used to prove to them that Jesus was the Christ. How, you say? That's impossible, Pastor. And how? How can we do that? Well, you see, there's only two sources that he could have used to do this. Only two. And we have them both, actually. We have a recording of one, and we have the same scriptures that he read over, too. Number one, through the prophecies of the Holy Scriptures of the Old Testament Christian Bible. No disrespect to anyone Jewish that's listening to this, uh, this sermon. The Jewish Bible, the Tanakh, as I'll call it, to be respectful, because that is its Jewish name, the Tanakh. It's the first 42 books of the Old Testament Scriptures. Again, no disrespect to any Jew listening. And number two, the ways in which Jesus Christ fulfilled them by his life, by his death and by his resurrection, right? Or by what we know today as the Christian New Testament or the Gospels of Jesus Christ. Now, Saul would have actually had the knowledge of Jesus Christ's life because, again, there was no New Testament Bible then. So they had the knowledge to Jews in Damascus of everything Jesus did, the miracles, because his miracles spread throughout the like the known world, like people knew about what, I mean, couldn't you? I mean, healing eyes and raising people from the dead and making the deaf to hear and raising up the lame. That's good, man. That's going to spread all over. So they had what we don't have. They had the life of Jesus that they had just seen. We've got the scriptures that talk about the life of Jesus, right? 
And I actually have a Hebrew to English Tanakh, and I have read over parts of this Tanakh in English that Saul would have showed them to prove that Jesus was the Christ. And when I compare them to the Christian Old Testament, again, no disrespect, some of the words are a little different, but the differences between the Hebrew and the English and the Old Testament Christian Bible, same 42 books, are all the same, and they don't change the meaning. The same scriptures then that Saul showed them are the same scriptures that I can show you today uh, how Saul proved Christ to them for days, proving to them that Jesus was actually the Christ from both the Tanakh and the New Testament, proving that he was the promised one from God, God's Jewish Messiah. Isn't that powerful? It's so powerful. Now, as if you couldn't get the whole idea, the inspiration that God gave me for the message by the title, I'm going to reveal it to you now, right? The vision or inspiration that the Lord laid on my heart for this message was to do the same thing today with you guys as Saul did to them almost 2,000 years ago. I'm going to prove to you from the Tanakh and from the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, from the Gospels of Christ, that Jesus is indeed the Christ, the Messiah of God. Because this is what I just felt God leading me to do for this sermon. So are you ready? Now, we're not going to do the whole days thing, right? Now, maybe we might, right? Maybe God will lead me to do like my first ever, you know, series. And we will make this topic like days of sermons that I'm going to have over as the weeks go on, but I don't know. We'll see. But I, this is only one hour for church that I try to keep. I try to stay around an hour because I could go for many. Trust me, anybody that knows me knows I can go for many. I can stand up here for four, five, six hours. I can just keep going all day long. Just open the Bible and just I'll just teach. But I'm going to keep you here for only about an hour. And uh, this is not the Areopagus, right, where they went and they taught philosophy and things about God and they did that for days or they did that for weeks or whatever, hours. Although I wish we did have an Areopagus today. I wish we did all have a place in America. Every city, I think, every really town, I believe, I, I hope one day to see that every, well, we have an Areopagus, a place that we could go openly and just talk about our beliefs and talk about things, and debate openly, and, and not be all closed up like all Americans are, where they don't want to ever talk to nobody, and they want to stay in their own separate worlds. Anyway, just a thought. I would like to see that, though. Anyway, first section of Scripture, Saul most definitely gave them. Heads up while I'm doing my little overview for this. Psalm 22. You want to go in there, Bible? Psalm 22. I'm going to read the whole thing over, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to read over the actual prophecy what God said the Messiah was going to do, and then I'm going to show you how Jesus Christ, by his life, death, and resurrection, proved that he was the one that God was writing about, right? Psalm 22, a completely messianic psalm that the Jews were to look at, right, to, to, as far as prophecy of the Messiah. You see, the reason prophecy is probably the single most awesome just awesome evidence that the Bible is really, <laughs> is really written by the God of all the universe. Not, not the other gods that people so-called that they have, that they, they're not really gods of the universe, but our, the Bible is actually written by the king of the, 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 the master of the universe. Because here's why. Do you know what's going to happen to you next week? I sure don't. I may be here. I may be dead. I don't know. How about a year? Well, how about a hundred years? How about six to eight hundred years, which is when Psalm 22 was written about the Messiah, 
6,800 years before Jesus lived, or now to this day, 26 to 2,800 years roughly, right, since Psalm 22 was written by King David, one of Israel's greatest kings, right? So how does Psalm 22 point to Jesus as God's Christ, and how does it prove him, right? How does it prove him? How did it prove him to the Jews in Damascus? How is it going to prove to us that Jesus Christ is God's Son? And in, in a sense, also prove to us that God's Word, hands down, right, is above all other books, all other man-made religious books, because they are man-made. Well, let's look. Psalm 22, we're going to go verses 1 through 18. We're going to open up verse 1. It says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, if you are already a Christian and you've read the Bible, you know, if you've read the Bible and you've been to church more than probably a dozen or two times, you already know that that was exactly what Jesus Christ cried from the cross in Matthew 27:46. My God, my God, why do you forsake me? Why are you forsaking me? Why did he cry that out? I mean, right? I mean, what what purpose did he have? He knew that he wasn't going to be delivered, right? He knew what he, his mission was. Why did he say that? Well, he said that because he wanted to point out to listeners, both then and now, those were their seekers, those that want to see God, those that respond to his calling, he wanted to point this psalm out to them. Why in the world would he want to point this psalm out to them? Well, you'll see as we read on, because what he said, uh, what he's led to say in this psalm was, was written for seekers who would read it and see it the whole psalm. The whole psalm was written as a prophecy of the Messiah, right? And then they could look to the life of Jesus and go, whoa, I can't believe that psalm was written. And this guy, Jesus, oh my gosh, everything that they say in there is all like about him. Oh, I just can't believe that. Did, did the writer know? Or, or how did Jesus maybe make it up and fabricate it? Did he make those things happen? Well, just look. I, I want to point out before we begin, because you may be listening and going, once I start going on and going, come on, man, somebody had to know something, and this was set up, because there's no way that this stuff could be this precise being six to 800 years. Well, I want to note this. The very first line of this prophecy was the only part that Jesus Christ actually was able to do on his own. That was the only part. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the only part of all this psalm that Jesus actually had a part in. He had no part in anything else, and he couldn't have. He was nailed to a cross, and how could he make anybody do anything that was down below, right? So just watch. It's blowing your, It blows my mind. I even was looking over this morning. It blows my mind now. Picking up right after, my God, my God, why do you forsake me? Look at what, verse 1 again. Why are you so far from helping me? And from the words of my groaning, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. And in the night season, and I am not silent, but you are holy and thrown in the praises of Israel. Oh, our fathers trusted in you. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were delivered. They trusted in you and were not ashamed. Now look at six through eight. Here's where it really gets interesting. But I am a worm. And no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. Huh, that sounds kind of familiar, despised by the people. Well, then, you know, to be true, that could be anybody, right? But let's just keep that in your mind. He was, this is a man that we're talking about, the Messiah, that was going to be a reproach, and he was going to be despised by the people. Verse 7, 
and all those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake their head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now that was written, remember, six to eight hundred years before Jesus was, before this point at the cross that Jesus was on. Now listen to the account of Jesus Christ on the cross. And you think to yourself, is there anything that might compare, right? Matthew 27, 39 through 44, the actual account, what guys gave their lifeblood to protect and to profess. Matthew 29, or 27, 39 through 44, and those who passed by him blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and others, said, He saved others. He can't save himself. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross, and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reveal, uh, reviled him with the same thing. Now, now, New Testament, life of Jesus, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him, right? Psalm 22, six to 800 years before Christ, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he, uh, since he delights in him, right? What? Are you kidding me? How, how in the world? How in the world do they say the same thing almost word for word? And that psalm was written six to eight hundred years before Christ ever lived. Wow. And you tell me this, as I kind of alluded to before, with Christ only having something to do with the first part of that, how could he have had anything to do with the rest of it? How did he make him say those things? He was nailed to the cross. Did he, did he go, hey, guys, hey, tell these, say these things, and then I'm going to go to this psalm. It's impossible. When you, when you consider this is my favorite type of evidence, the evidence that's those that don't believe in him, right? It's one thing if a Christian, well, then they say, oh, some good thing, like they, they kind of prove a Christian thing. Well, if one Christian says something and one Christian says something, well, you know, that's biased, because they both believe in Jesus. You can't take their words, right? They both believe in Jesus. But when somebody testifies something that's anti your cause, and they provide the same evidence, and we know there's no bias, these people hated him. They were mocking him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him. Now, if you have him, right? Uh, they mocked him. They mocked him. They, 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 they basically spit on him. They, were, they treated him badly. They wouldn't have wanted to prove that he was Christ. Yet the very words they spoke <laughs> are completely identical, practically, to the psalm that was written six to 800 years before he lived. Now, there's no way that they said those things on their own because we know there's no way they would have wanted to say them and prove he was the Christ. That means that they said him and it was divine that they said him because God made him say him so that he could prove to people, this is the one I sent you. Wake up, people. This is the Christ, right? Look to verses 9 and 11. It gets better. But you are he who took me out of the womb. 
You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for, for trouble is near. There is no one to help. Matthew 26 talks about how when they came to him in the garden, as they came to him, all his disciples fled. Literally, when he hung there on the cross, he was literally all by himself. All of his so-called men, I'll call them that, so-called men, because real men would have hung in there. But they weren't being real men at that time. They were being scared sheep. And they all ran. He was all alone, for there is none to help me. Look at verses 12 and 13. It gets so powerful here. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They gape at me with their mouths like a raging and roaring lion. Again, Matthew 27, 39 through 44, same as we already said earlier. These people walked around him. You rotten. This is just giving you a picture of how they're saying it, of, of how they're saying that he's this, oh, you're wrong. We don't believe in you. You're, you call on God mocking him. King of all the universe, they mocked him, proving that they didn't even know that he was the Christ, as we see here in scriptures. Uh, Psalm 22, 14 to 15, I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. My tongue clings to my jaws. So whatever position this Messiah, this guy was in writing to this, and this experience that he's describing, or I should say the experience that David saw, that this, this person that was, that was in this position that they were in were wiped out. They were, they were just white, and they had, hadn't had anything to drink, their mouth and their jaws. They couldn't have anything. that They were so dry in their mouth, and it says, You have brought me to the dust of death. They were just about to die. Matthew 27, 47, 48. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it to the reed and offered it to him to drink. So he was at the point of death, in despair, wiped out and thirsty. And yet we see that somebody offered Jesus Christ something to drink on the cross because he was thirsty as he was wiped out. Psalm 16, 17, for dogs have surrounded me. I love this part. The congregation of the wicked has encircled me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. He could see all of his bones. They were all hanging out. His hands and feet were pierced. What do, what do we know about what history tells us? Well, when Romans scourged, oh, excuse me, Let's go to Matthew 27, 26 for the same parallel there to Psalm twenty two seventeen. 17. Then Pilate released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, that means he had Jesus whipped, right? He didn't have him crucified yet. He had him whipped or flogged is another word. And if you guys have seen The Passion of Christ, which maybe you have, maybe you haven't, that was a very, that was a very interesting and kind of true, but not quite true uh, uh, depiction of what Jesus Christ actually went through on the cross. When the Romans scourged someone that was to be put to death, they did it so violently and brutally that the flesh of the flogged man or woman would literally hang from their bodies and would literally reveal their bones because of the way that they hit them and the way that they 
swung these these glass shards, these whips that had glass shards and pieces of metal in them. And then right there in Psalm twenty two seventeen, it says there that he could see all his bones. His bones were exposed, and they pierced his hands and his feet. Matthew twenty seven twenty six. Pilate then delivered him to be crucified. Right, and Psalm twenty two sixteen says that his hands and feet were pierced. One other amazing thing to note here in Psalm 22, when it was written, six to eight hundred years before Christ ever lived or was born, right? Crucifixion, the piercing of someone's hands and feet to kill them, was not even invented yet. So no one was putting anybody to death this way by crucifixion when David wrote Psalm 22. Yet, the psalmist speaks of what he saw, that the Christ, the Messiah, was going to be crucified, having his hands and his feet pierced, and it just so happened that Jesus himself proclaimed to be the Messiah, as well as did his disciples, and he was crucified, having his hands and feet pierced with nails. Wow. 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 And with that, Look at what, what Psalm twenty two sixteen said. For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has encircled me. We have Matthew 27, 27 to 31. Then the soldiers of the governor. Now these aren't Jews. These are Gentile Romans. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus in the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. For dogs have surrounded me. And the, the New Testament, even Old Testament, we see that Gentiles were always described as dogs. They were not ever the Jewish brethren. Remember the lady who came and she wanted her daughter to be healed. And he said, hey, for, she said, the dogs, hey, we, we'll eat the crumbs off the master's table. And people, what? She called herself a dog? She only did that because the Jews considered Gentiles to be dogs unclean dogs that had no training they weren't godly and so here dogs have surrounded me the congregation of wicked has encircled me they gathered around him all the dogs and they stripped him they put a scarlet robe on him when they had twisted a crown of thorns they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand and they bowed the knee before him and mocked him saying hail king of the jews and they they spat on him, and they took the reed and struck him in the head. And, and when they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to be crucified. Yet Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, just said, For dogs have surrounded me, the congregation of the wicked encircled me. Wow. I mean, it, how many coincidences, which I don't even believe in that word, do you need to have before you start realizing how in the world, if Jesus wasn't the Christ, how did he manage, even again, he was in control of none of this. He didn't have anything to do at this point with them doing these things to him. He was the, he was the one that was being beaten. He was the one that was not in control in this situation. And yet, all these things that they did, they fulfilled the Messianic Psalm 22, and it's just amazing. The last verse, the verse to blow them all, just, just to encapsulate all of them. Look at Psalm 22:18. It says this, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now we have Matthew 27:35 again. Christ not in control 
hanging on the cross or being led to the cross after he's brutally beaten. He's up there. His bones are showing. He's bleeding everywhere. He's, he's wiped out at the point of death, right? Matthew 27, 35. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots. That Matthew, the tax collector, the ex-tax collector, now apostle, says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Even Matthew puts this in his gospel. Matthew was the writer to Jews. And Matthew puts it in his gospel to Jews, the Jewish gospel, that this Messiah, Jesus, this is what he did. And look, David prophesied about exactly what they were going to do to Jesus six to 800 years before. Come on, guys, wake up. And, and this messianic prophecy written of Christ 6,800 years before Jesus lived proves and points with pinpoint accuracy. We're, we're not just, this is not a, 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 a prophecy of the so-called Nostradamus. Oh, I can see the city burning. Well, that's wonderful. Hey, I, I know a lot of cities that have burned. Chicago, I've had a lot of fires in a lot of cities. Oh, but there were a lot of people dying. Oh, man, that's interesting. Oh, a lot of people could have died everywhere. But with pinpoint accuracy. The exact details of what the Bible recorders recorded for us as what happened to Christ. As the disciples laid down their lives, they didn't. They, they could have saved their lives, yet 10 out of 12 of them died, brutal martyrs' deaths, all because they wouldn't say that Jesus wasn't the Christ. And yet, they who wrote the Bible with nothing to gain, they wrote the New Testament scriptures of the Christian Bible, wrote this, which cost them their lives. Does that look for motive? If somebody's going to lie about something, like if somebody's going to make something up and fabricate something about somebody, I'll look for motive. What do they have to gain by that? Did they have to get rich by that? Did they do it so that they could get some, you know, some, some social status? Or, or you know, what, what did they have to gain by their lie? Because after all, if, if, if let's just say somebody sat in their basement and they wrote all that about Jesus, one of the disciples. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah only go back some. Oh, yeah, oh, he did this, he did that. At the point of... Okay, uh, Matthew, okay, Mark, okay, uh, you know, John, uh, uh, you know, Barnabas, uh, we're going to kill you now because of what you wrote? Well, I'd be like, uh, wait a minute now. I, boy, I really thought that was going to help me. You're going to kill me? You're, you're going to, one disciple, filleted alive while on a cross, all because he wouldn't deny exactly what one of his fellow men wrote, what he professed. That Jesus fulfilled this Psalm 22 and it was powerful, yet he wouldn't deny it to his death, to a brutal death at that. Not just a, a gun to the head, pow, you're dead. That, no, 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 a brutal death. <laughs> and he wouldn't deny exactly what's written here. Showing me we have two forms of witness here. We have the form of the witness of the Jews who said those things which did not believe in Jesus Christ. And they would have never said something to back up Jesus because they hated him. And you have the disciples giving their lives for what they wrote, which means that they really, 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 really believed it. Like more than just like, oh, there's the sun in the sky. Oh, that's very nice. Guys, there's no way that this was a coincidence. There's no way this could have just been done. This was 100% a messianic psalm and 100%, I'll guarantee it, over the days that Saul 
showed them proof of Christ, there's no way that this was not one of the scriptures that he showed them along with what they all knew happened to Jesus on the cross. Wow. Next and last one I'm going to really go in depth with thoroughly. I got one after this, but this one I'm going to hit thoroughly is, and I'll give you a heads up, Isaiah chapter 53. Now, Isaiah was even written way before. I'm sorry, Isaiah was written a little bit after King David, right? Isaiah was one of the prophets going in for Jerusalem, and he was one of the Jewish prophets. So his, his gospel, a lot of people call Isaiah's uh, uh, prophetic book a gospel because it has more about the Messiah in it than any other, any other writing in the whole Bible, except for the New Testament. Any other, any other uh, Old Testament or, or Tanakh writing, Isaiah's got the most about the Messiah. And we go to Isaiah 53, and we're just going to look at verses 1 through 12. We're going to start with verses 1 through 3, and we're going to see there how Isaiah speaks about the Messiah, and we're going to look to the Christ, or to the Jesus, the one I, I proclaim, and I say, and I believe, according to Psalm 22 and many others, that he was the Christ with proof, not just because I say, right? Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3 and 1 through 12. Who has believed our report? Hey, what I'm going to tell you guys, it's going to be unbelievable. I'm just telling you right now, I'm starting off this whole chapter. What I'm telling you is unbelievable. It's going to sound unbelievable to you. And he goes on. And to whom, of the arm, whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. And as a root out of dry ground, he has no form or comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Look at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, the Messiah now. The ones the Jews were waiting for to receive, they didn't even know they were going to reject him. Yet Isaiah says of the Christ, he'd be a man despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. One of Jesus' disciples that was beaten and whom they attempted to kill, but they couldn't, the apostle John, he suffered greatly proclaiming as firsthand witness. John and Peter and James, they were like one of the firsthand, firsthand witnesses. Like if you're going into a car accident and you're investigating a car accident, you don't want the guy that was 10 cars back to tell you what happened. You, you want the first-hand witness, the actual the car that was right behind the, the scene of the accident when it happened. And, and he's going to be able to tell you, barring he wasn't on his cell phone, hopefully he wasn't. Well, there's somebody there that probably wasn't on their cell phone, hopefully. But the first-hand witness is always the most powerful witness of anything that happened. And John, a Messiah greatly beloved by Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, verses 10 and 11, chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, he says this of this same thing. He was in the world... And the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Sit five to six hundred years before Isaiah writes, you're, the people that you're going to will not receive you. You'll be a rejected man, Messiah. And here we see, and we know, even from history tells us, that the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was not accepted. He was rejected, right? Look at verses 4 and 5, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. To which the New Testament says in Matthew 20, 17 and 19, when Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples on the side on the road, and he said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed. He knew it. 
to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles to mock him and to scourge him and to crucify him. Yet on the third day, he'll rise, I'll rise again. And here we have the same thing Jesus said, being the same thing that Isaiah wrote about the Messiah, and we actually know that Jesus Christ went by, again, by the testimony of the disciples, which was, is the most powerful testimony of Christ Jesus that he actually really lived. This is disciples that followed him, even under the pretense of death, yet they still followed him, and yet he testified of them that, which cost him, basically, or tried, they, they tried to cost him his life for it. 53, Isaiah 53, 6 and 7. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Matthew 26 again, when they came to arrest Jesus, all his disciples, all his followers fled. Keep going. 6 and 7. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears of silence, so he opened not his mouth. Did you know that Jesus Christ never complained once? Whether in the garden or once they arrested him, or even walking to the cross, carrying his own cross, being at the point of death, even right there after the flogging, he never complained even once. Instead, Luke 23, the Gospel of Luke 23, 26, and 28 tells us this. As he was being led away, they laid hold of a certain man, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming from the country. And on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus, so with Jesus. And a great multitude of people followed him. And women also mourned and lamented, but yet Jesus turned to them, and didn't complain, <laughs> he's at the point of death, could see his bones, he's wiped out nearly to the point of death even right there. And he turns to them and he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. He didn't complain. He gave encouraging words even at the point of being near death. He gave encouraging words to those that were following. Hey, keep going. And you know what? Don't feel bad for me because it's going to be worse. It's going to be just as bad for you. Hey, guys, don't feel sorry for me. Feel sorry for yourselves. Uh, Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Matthew 26, he was arrested, put in a type of prison overnight after they arrested him in the Garden of Gethsemane, after they arrested him from there. Then they passed judgment on him in the high priest's courtyard the next morning. Still 53.8. And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was stricken. Now there is so much here. I'm going to get through this as quick as I can. Just, just keep in mind. I'm going to keep going. But just know that the Messiah was going to be cut off from the land of the living. What does that mean? <laughs> that means he's going to die. That means they're going to put him to death. He's not going to live, right? And, and, and he's going to do it for the transgressions of the people, his people, right? Well, the Messiah was to be murdered, cut off from the land of living for the transgressions of the sins of God's people, Jews, and, of course, for the whole world. And it means he was going to be stricken and beaten. Jesus, who proclaimed himself to be the Christ, also said that he was to die for the sins of mankind. Matthew 26, 26 and 28. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, said, Take, eat, for this is my body. Or, broken or the same word, smitten, broken for mankind. Then he took the cup, gave it to his disciples, and gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood, blood of the new covenant, which is shed for the remission of sins. This is, this is super important. 
Isaiah 53, this, this, gets, this gets awesome. 53.9, and they made his grave with the wicked. Jesus, whom scripture records never sinned, not once, was crucified on a cross next to two criminals. Matthew 27.44, he had his grave where he died with the wicked. And Jesus just so happened to be crucified to two wicked men. Wow. Isaiah 53 still, but with the rich at his, at his death. Jesus, who proclaimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, whom was crucified as a criminal next to criminals and even died with criminals, was honored in his burial and was buried with a rich man's death. Matthew 27, through, uh, 27 57 tells us that, that Joseph of Arimathea came and got him and put him in a tomb. Well, a tomb was not for a man that was crucified on a cross. A tomb was for a rich man because a tomb was expensive. A tomb was not cheap. They'd usually bury a criminal in an unmarked grave. Yet Jesus got a tomb. He got a rich man tomb's death. Uh, two criminals that perished after crucifixion never, ever, ever got buried in tombs for rich people. It was very expensive and, again, very costly. Yet this happened to Jesus. Now, Isaiah 53, 9, 10, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Again, Jesus Christ never sinned. We can't say that anybody else. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put into grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. Again, we never read of Jesus ever, anybody ever, anybody ever proclaimed that he ever sinned, even himself included. So uh, moving on, Isaiah 53, 10, 11. This is where it gets interesting. Remember now, we already saw that the Messiah was going to be put to death for the sins of mankind. That was something important. So what else, though? Is that it? Messiah just dead? That's just, we're not going to, that, that's just it? He died and that's our Savior, a dead man? Isaiah 53, 10, 11. He shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days. And the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Notice that it said there that the Messiah was alive still? Well, how could he be, in Isaiah 53, be cut off from the land of the living and then still be alive? Because <laughs> Isaiah was prophesying the, not only the crucifixion and the death of the Christ, but he was also talking about how the Christ was going to be, he was going to rise from the dead. <laughs> oh, wow. I mean, right there, 53, 10, 11, he shall see his seed, prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord is a prosperous hand. He has to see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. That's somebody that's alive. That's not somebody that's dead. Well, who else? Hmm. Let me think here. Who else died and then was rose again? I, well, I can only think of one that actually has proof, a witness proof to it. I mean, there's some that they say, oh, yeah, they died, and they, but they're kind of like folklore. Like nobody can, like nobody was there, all right? Uh, but we know that somebody, who was that? That was, uh, was that, oh, that was Jesus. He was the only man in all of history that we ever have recorded of somebody that died and that he rose again, the same Messiah that Isaiah is talking about in chapter 53. Wow. Nobody's ever had any firsthand witness testimony of everybody dying and then raising again other than Jesus Christ. Wow. And, and then look at Isaiah, the rest of Isaiah 11 and 12, our last two verses, I believe. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many. What does that mean? Just by the intimate knowledge of him, you'll be made righteous before a holy God. Wow. It's not by my works you say that I'm saved? No, Isaiah said, by his 
knowledge, by the intimate knowledge of my righteous servant, many are going to be saved. For he shall bear their iniquities, therefore I will divide them a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil of the strong, because he poured out his soul into death, but yet he was raised, interesting, and he was numbered with the transgressors, yet Jesus was he died with sinners, yet he rose again. They divided his clothes amongst them. I mean, how many more coincidences, if you'll call it that, do we need? How many more so-called, I mean, there's just, it's just no way that Jesus was not the Christ when you look back to the Old Testament or the Tanakh scriptures and you look with an honest heart at the New Testament of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Isaiah 35, 5-6, one last one, one real quick one, another messianic section written of God's Christ that was to come and, and do something that was super, super, super powerful. This Messiah 35, 5 and 6 was supposed to open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf were going to be open, and the lame would leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb would sing, those that were mute. Who else did this in the whole history of the world? We never read about anybody opening the eyes of the blind, making the deaf to hear, making the lame to walk, and making the mute to speak. There was not one. John 9, there was a man that got healed from being blind from birth, and yet he says in 9.32, Gospel of John 9.32, of Christ who healed him of his blindness since the world began. It's been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. Nobody else, guys. Nobody else did it. Nobody else has recorded doing it. Nobody else has ever had firsthand witness of it happening. And yet, Jesus Christ did it. And I could literally go on. And I've already gone on way longer than I should have gone on. I usually only like to keep an hour. But this is just amazing stuff today. I just... I, I just, there's so much. I could go on for days. I could go on for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And we could get in debates about this and we could look at things and, and this would be awesome. And if you want to talk to me about it, praise God. I'll talk. Call me. I really wish I had days like Saul did. Wow. But when you walk with God every day of your life, things happen. God shows you things and, and it's awesome. Uh, finishing up our verses for today. Now, please remember verse 23. After Saul spent many days presenting those many, many more proofs, right? That Jesus was the Christ of these people because I could get more. I'm not. They plotted to kill him uh, because they were so vehemently angry that he proved their belief in Jesus wrong. How sad was that? And since they plotted to kill him, how did Saul and his brothers and sisters in Christ, the disciples of Jesus Christ in Damascus, respond to their evil plans? Verses 24 and 25 Read them over quickly. <clears throat> but their plot became known to Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night, let him down through the wall in a large basket. Saul fled the scene. And the Christians there in Damascus, well, they helped him. <laughs> well, why didn't Saul and those Christians fight back and just stay there? Why didn't they defend themselves? Well, because that's not what Jesus said. Jesus Christ, Matthew 10, 14, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from the house or city, shake the dust off your feet. And get out of there. Go to another city. Right? Because there's many more. So Saul, a follower of Christ, followed exactly what Jesus told him to do. Now, I'm not sure where you stand with Jehovah and his Christ or Messiah today which would be Jesus of Nazareth, according to the proofs of the scripture that I just showed you. But if you are listening to this message and you know him personally today, meaning you have been born again, you've been changed, 
you've met God, you've received Christ, and it's more than just a mental thing. You have been changed. You have been born again. You love Jesus. You live your life radically for Jesus because that's what we read about people that get saved in the Bible. You live your life radically for Jesus. This message should have given you so much powerful faith. This message was like, wow, really? I didn't know all those things about Jesus because here, why? Here's why. Here's one of the reasons why. You have one amazing piece of truth on your side, the justifiable, provable truth of the fact that you have and can give to anyone proof of who and what you believe in. And it's not just your opinion and it's not just your unjustifiable truth that you just have because people taught you this since you were a kid. That's what every other religion has. That's what JW said. That's what the Mormons had. That's what the Catholics had. That's what the Muslims have. That's what the Buddhists have. That's what the Hindus have. They all have a faith that they all, well, I grew up that way, or all oh, that's what this guy told me, and that's just the way it is. They got no evidential proof. They got no reality for what they believe in, but you do. You do. Historical, prophetical and archaeological proof to what you believe. The other two we didn't even touch on. You have prophetical proof. God, who knows the beginning from the end, saw this happen, and he said, I'm going to make these things happen because I want people to know who my Christ is. I want them to have like practically empirical evidence to be able to show this is my son, the one whom I'm sending to save the world. You have the proof that your God, the one and only true God of the universe, Jehovah, and his son, Jesus Christ, is who he says that he is and that you can tell others that, that, that he can be relied on. He can be trusted totally. He can be worshipped and obeyed with all your hearts because he's real and not just some made-up deity. You have the proof. You have the truth of the proof and the proof of the truth, guys. You have it. And because of this, I encourage and exhort you with all my heart to walk strong and powerful in your faith and obedience to Christ Jesus. For he is worthy of the best that you can give. He did all this to, number one, show people who he is so that if they'd respond to that, then they'd turn to him and then now that we've turned to him, this even still benefits us because it's still, wow, you mean I've got this proof of who my God really is that the Muslims don't have and that the Buddha, oh my gosh, wow, wow, that's awesome. So therefore, Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, I beseech you therefore, brethren, to walk worthy of the calling of which you have called, been called, to, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of spirit in the bond of peace. Now, anyone without Christ Jesus, so not born again and surrendered to Jesus as their Lord and Master, the Christ and the one with and, and one with Almighty God of heaven and earth, the same and one together. For he said, Me and the Father are one. This is the Jesus whom I proclaim to you today. You, but if you are without Christ, so you're a Jew, or you're a Mormon, or you're a Jehovah Witness, or you're a Buddhist, or you're a Hindu, or you're a Muslim, or you're a Catholic, right? Or you, or you just have a head belief in Jesus, and you've never been born again. Maybe you've never been changed. You've never met God. For to you, I say this, the reality that you have of your God has no weight. 
It has no evidence. It has no proof that you can rest in so that you can know for sure that your God is real. All you've done is been taught by other people this is real. You don't, your books provide you zero, zero hope. Because those gods are just gods that can't even be proven. Well, if they can't be proven, how can they save you from what comes after death? How can they save you from the fear of death? They can't. They just can't. You cannot have the faith that a true born-again Christian has because your hope rests in your good works and some ancient book which can't be verified as truth. So it's somebody's opinion. Somebody wrote it, but we can't back it up. We can't prove it in any way. It's just written material. Well, I could write a book today and make a new religion. And that's exactly what Joseph Smith did. He wrote a book, made a religion, and passed it on. Millions of people that are lost in their sin believe it because they think that gives them hope, but there's nothing to prove there. There's nothing to prove. If you go to your scriptures and you look for proof, you go to look for it today, there's nothing. There's nothing. Unlike the Bible. Unlike somebody who rests their hope fully in Christ. You don't have any way to test the validity and the proof of what you believe in. You are lost and you have no hope and you know that I'm right because you hear what I say these words. If that's you today, I, because of what Saul did with the unbelieving Jews of his day, just prove Jesus as the Christ to you today. I just proved him to you today. And, and, and he claimed by verifiable proofs that he came to save you from fear and death. And what comes next? Now, if this is you today, will you be like the Jews of Saul's day where they were so angry that I proved them wrong that they, got, they wanted to come and kill him? Or you don't want to come and kill me? Or are you going to be like me? Are you going to be like Saul? Are you going to repent? Are you going to turn to Christ with all your heart? Are you going to turn to him now and, and not just have a belief in him? That is not what the Bible says is salvation, a head belief. It's a belief of the heart. It, it's a confession with the mouth and a belief of the heart that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and this is a turning to Jesus, not, not just a, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh he, oh, he was a great man. Oh, yeah, he's Lord and Savior. But if he's not the Lord and Savior of your life and you're not surrendered to him, turning to him, Lord, I need you, Jesus. Save me. Please make me born again. I don't want to. I need you belief, then you're not right with God. And if you're a Jew, or you're a Mormon, or you're a Muslim, or you're a Hindu, or you're a Buddhist, or you're a Catholic, I know very few Catholics that have this trust in God. Most trust in their works. Most trust in praying to Mary. Most trust in praying to Peter and doing the rosary. Well, that doesn't save anybody. For Jesus Christ said, Father, if there's another way, let this cup pass from me. And yet God said, there's no other way, my son. The cross is it, and that's it. Think of that. The cross is it, and that's it. So will you turn today? Will you fall on your knees? Will you repent? Will you turn to Christ? And will you give Him your heart? Will you give Him your soul? Will you lay down your life to Him? And will you ask Him, can I be born again, God? I want to be, I want to have your Holy Spirit live within me. I want to be saved. I don't want to just be religious. I don't want to just know who you are. Lord, I want to know you intimately. For the Bible says that many people know who God is. All people really know that God is real. Many people know who he is, 
but few people actually know him like in, in an intimate relationship with a wife or husband way. And that's how God says you have to be saved. You've got to be married to God in a marriage-bound relationship with your heart in His hands. Would you please turn to Him today? Jesus Christ is real. I just proved you to Him today. Your religion has no proof. What will you do? Search the Scriptures if you're not ready today. See if I'm wrong. Test what I say. I did. Test what the Bible says and see if God is right. See if God is a liar. You won't find one to be, but test for yourself and seek. Jesus said, all those who seek shall find. All those who ask shall receive. Ask Him today. Continue to show me. I need you. I want you. Turn to Him right now. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your great love. Thank you so much, Lord God, that you laid down all these things, Lord God, in heaven. Not so that we just could know who you are, Lord God, like we know the sun, like we know the moon, like, like I know, oh, you know, I, there's all these places of business around me, Lord God, but that's so that we could be your servant and hired by you as not just knowing of the business, Lord, but going actually to the business and getting hired by the business, Lord God. So many people tell me, oh, I know God, I know Jesus Christ. But then I say, well, have you been hired? Well, what do you mean? Have you been hired? Are you married? To go, well, I, I mean, I believe in him. But Lord, what your word says, it's not just a belief or even the demons believe. God, and they tremble and they believe and they profess, and they even profess you, Jesus, as the Christ, as Lord, as Master, as God. Yeah, we know they're not saved. So they even had a belief in you. It's not even knowing that you're Lord, not even knowing that you're Master, not even knowing that you're Savior. It's submitting our lives to you, Lord, as that and giving you that position over our lives and surrendering ourselves to you. God, I need you. I'm here. Please, please save me. I need you. Please, dear God, I pray that many today hearing this message, Lord God, would cry out to you and, and, and stop unbelieving and start believing Start putting their trust in you. Stop being in their false face and in their lies. Lord God, as the Bible says that anything that's outside of Christ is a lie. Thank you so much, Lord God. We love you, we praise you, and we thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name.